1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is, with, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Let's pray, and we'll get started. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word, uh, for uh, this place that we can meet in, uh, for our brothers and sisters uh, in front of us, behind us, to our left and to our right. Um, Lord, as we, as we learned last week, uh, your, your church is a, is a family, a household, in the truest sense of that word. And so, God, we are thankful that you have provided for us this family, that we can just grow in what it means to know you and love you, grow alongside one another, serve one another, and live for your glory and for the good of others. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, we're continuing along, looking at chapter 4. Now, last week, we looked at the end of chapter 3, where, where the Apostle Paul just straight up states his purpose for writing the letter. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you'll know how one should behave in the household of God. That's why he's writing, so that we know how to live, how to behave, how to conduct ourselves together as a church. And so to say that the church is the household of God is no small thing. If you remember when we looked at this last week, it, it just that phrase, household of God, reminds us how beautiful and significant the church is. The church is like a sleeper. You know what a sleeper is? A sleeper is like someone or something that looks like unassuming and insignificant at first, like an undervalued player at draft time. But once you get them trained and conditioned and signed on, you get them on the court or on the field, and you start to see what this person can really do. And that's like kind of like what the local church is like. It's unassuming at first, but man, once she gets healthy, and once she starts reforming to the word of God and empowered by the spirit, man, she can be a force to be reckoned with. But this isn't the only thing that Paul wants us to know about the church. Even though he firmly believes in the hope and the splendor and the, and the beauty of the church, he's also a realist. He doesn't hide the harsher realities of church life, which I think if we're honest, that's kind of hard for middle-class suburban people like us because we're, we're addicted to comfort. We're addicted to ease. We don't like hard things. We're like the guy who looks in the mirror and notices like this nasty growth on the side of his neck, right? Like that thing in, in, in Ralph Breaks the Internet, if you've seen that. And so, and, but then he refuses, the guy refuses to get it checked because he, he doesn't like bad news. But Paul, Paul knows how foolish that kind of attitude and thinking can be. And he wants us to see that in a fallen world like ours, churches can have even dangerous imperfections. 
And we need to know this. And we need to know how to address this before the cancer spreads and it begins to affect the whole body. We can't be afraid of a spiritual biopsy. And so here is the big idea for this text, 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. It's that God has revealed his truth and goodness through the word and through Jesus himself. And false members and false teachers arise when they stray from this truth and goodness. So let's start walking through the text. Here's your first point for this afternoon. The first point is this, the matter of members who stray. Let's just talk about that reality, all right? The very real matter that there are members who stray. Verse one says this, now the spirit expressly says, which is a Pauline way of saying, look, the Holy Spirit drops this truth in no uncertain terms, all right? That in later times, some will depart from the faith. So here's the first hard truth that he wants us to swallow is that some people will stray away from the faith. Some people who, who claim to be Christians, who profess to believe in Jesus alone for salvation, who joined up with the local church, down the road, they might turn their back on Christ in the church. And yes, absolutely, the church is a pillar and foundation of God's truth. Yes, she is a beautiful force in the world, uh, like my strength right here, uh, <laughs> Yes, the church is a pillar and foundation of truth. Yes, she's a beautiful force in the world. But don't, don't be surprised if someone turns their back on the whole thing. Although we might be saddened when people show themselves to be false members of Jesus' church, we should never be surprised by it. Many of you know the name Billy Graham, Right? There's few names have been more of a household name in the 20th century when it comes to Christianity than, than Billy Graham, right? He was a famous evangelist of the 1900s who would do these crusades, filling up stadiums, calling crowds of upwards to tens of thousands of people. He would call them to turn uh, from their old ways, to turn from their sin and turn to the hope of the gospel, well, a name that you might not have heard of is, is Charles Templeton. But in the early days, these two were inseparable. Billy Graham and Charles Templeton. They were like the iconic duo of Christian evangelism, as iconic of a duo as like John Lennon and Paul McCartney, as Frodo and Samwise, Woody and Buzz. Wayne and Garth. Wherever Billy went, Charles was there too. They were partners in ministry, partners in evangelism. They preached all over the world together. And Charles, Charles Templeton, uh, during, as their ministry uh, matured and progressed, uh, he decided that he wanted to go back to school and get an advanced theology degree. Uh, but the school that he picked happened to be uh, like a, a more liberal theological seminary, meaning they had a low view of the scriptures. And in one semester, that's all it took, in one semester, Charles Templeton lost his trust in the word of God. He lost his trust in the authority of the scriptures. So he, Charles Templeton, he writes to his friend, Billy Graham, and he says, hey, man, we're doing it all wrong. We're doing it all wrong. The Bible is not the final authority on truth. 
And Billy Graham receives this letter, and he's, he's heartbroken over it. He's saddened by it, and he writes back to his friend. He says, hey, man, I love you, but as for me, I'm going to continue to stand on the truth of the word of God. And they went their separate ways. Eventually, Charles left the faith altogether. And can you imagine just like how, how sad and heartbroken and, and bummed out uh, Billy Graham would have been? And listen, I know that some of you, because I've heard some of your stories, I know that some of you have similar stories. You have friends who've strayed from the faith. I came to faith uh, in college, as many of you know, at 19. And um, just, just recently, this last week, I, I ran across a, a social media post of one of the first Christian friends I ever had. You see, at that time in my life, I had like these really bad influence in my life. And, and, and this guy and the small group we were in, um, I mean, this was like my first small group. He and those other dudes were just so instrumental to my faith. And I ran across uh, this social media post from him uh, this last week where he was just flagrantly mocking the Christian faith. And I was gutted, broke my heart. See, the Bible says that this kind of thing will happen. It's not just Paul who says it, but in Matthew 24, Jesus himself, he warns his disciples that that's going to happen. And Paul's reminding them here in 1 Timothy 4 of that harsh reality that in a fallen world, some people will be tempted to depart from the faith. Now, we need to clarify something here. When, when Paul talks about some departing from the faith, he's not saying that these people became genuine Christians, born again by the Spirit, went from spiritual death to new life in Christ, and where they're really trusting in and resting in Jesus alone for salvation, and then they walk away and lose their salvation. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is people who profess the faith with their mouths, maybe even with their actions, going to, to church and engaging in other Christian disciplines and habits, but then later on, they renounce the faith, revealing that they never really experienced the transforming grace of Jesus in the first place. Now, how do we know that? In 1 John chapter 2, John, the apostle, says this. He's talking about a group of people like this, and he says, they went out from us but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Notice he doesn't say these people were Christians, but then they left us. They left Jesus. No, he says, because they left the household of God, it shows that they never really belonged to the family in the first place. Or how about this? Consider Jesus' words in John 10. In John 10, verses 27 and 28, Jesus is speaking, and he says, My sheep, they hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one, no one will snatch them out of my hands. Man, let that be good news to us this afternoon, that nobody, 
Nobody can be snatched from the grip of Jesus. If someone really is in his grip and in his care, they could never be snatched away. Can we trust a Savior who's unable to keep up on his promises? Of course not. Why would we? But man, Jesus is good on his promises. And not a single one can get snatched away. You see, the idea is that if you have genuine faith, saving faith, then you're born again. You're a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5 says. And then, as a new creation, you will never lose your saving grace. If you appear to lose it, that means that you never had it in the first place. That's why the Christian can sing with confidence from amazing grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. Twas grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Now, the way that this happens, people strain from the faith we find in the rest of verse 1. Read it again with me. Paul says the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Gnarly, right? Harsh language here. And we'll get into what exactly he's calling the teaching of demons in a minute. But here's what I want you to see right now is that when he says they devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons, he doesn't mean that they got caught up in the occult. He doesn't mean necessarily that they got caught up in Satanism. No, the devil's trickier than that. He's craftier than that. He's talking about beliefs that seem good on the outside that feel easy when you're walking through them, but originally they, they come from hell. You need to know that there are real spiritual forces at play seeking to thwart the mission of God and his church. Spiritual forces that are literally hell-bent on leading people away from the faith. And this leads us into our second point, where I want us to see now the character of teachers who stray. So we talked about the matter of members who stray. Let's talk, look now at the character of teachers who stray. How are the members led astray? <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 2 says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now here, he's describing the human teachers that are either knowingly or unknowingly peddling demonic teachings and leading people astray. And he focuses on their character. He names three things. He talks about their insincerity, their lying, and their seared consciences. Really quickly, let's walk through those. Insincerity, what does that mean? Now, that word for insincerity is the Greek word hypocrisi. Hypocrisi, the root word, is where we get the word hypocrite from. So this is someone who's one way on the outside, but another way on the inside. Or they're one way in public, but a different way in private. Or maybe they're, they're one way on Sunday, but another way when they're with their friends and coworkers and, 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 and homies throughout the week. It's where you talk the talk of faith, but you don't walk the walk. Now, there's a reason, again, that we talk about the transforming 
grace of the gospel. You'll hear us talk about that, the transforming grace of the gospel. And that's because the gospel truly transforms. It changes us. When you have been born again by the grace of God, you go from walking in sin to walking in new life. That's what grace does. Grace transforms us. Does that mean you don't sin anymore? No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean that you're growing to hate your sin. And when you do sin, you repent and you remorse over it. And you're thankful for God's grace. And with his help, you know that over time, you can grow in godliness. Here's how John puts it in 1 John again. It says, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, when we are united to Christ by faith and he gives us his identity of righteousness, that doesn't make us grieve our sin less. That should make us grieve our sin more. If you're a Christian, you're no longer who you were before. You no longer stand apart from God. You've been brought into his family. You've been rescued from separation from him. And now you are invited. You are gladly invited by him into living a righteous and holy life by the power of the spirit. To not just talk the talk, but to walk the walk by the grace of God too. And so Paul also talks about their lying. We talked about their insincerity, their hypocrisy, but now he talks about their lying. The verse continues, and he talks about the insincerity of liars. In other words, they say things about the Christian life that are verifiably false. You remember our talk on false teachers at the beginning of our series? We named a few different false gospels uh, that are popular in our cultural uh, context today. We talked about the prosperity gospel, the personal gospel, um, and, and you know things like that, the political gospel. One of the gospels we talked about is what we might call the piety gospel. This gospel says that salvation comes by keeping up with a list of rules and regulations, where your identity and your self-worth become based on, 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 on keeping up with how hard you work or how moral you are. And so you begin to sort of like look down on those that you might think are, are more lazy or more immoral or just not as spiritual as you are. And look, this false gospel, the piety gospel, this was the primary problem that Paul is addressing in our passage. There were a group of teachers and influences in the church saying, like, hey, if you're really a Christian, if you're a real, genuine follower of Jesus, then you shouldn't get married to prove your faithfulness to Jesus, and you should also not eat certain foods to prove yourself. In verse 3, it says that these were false teachers who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So there's this like religious sort of game that the pietists play where they take good things, awesome things that God made like marriage and food and drink, and they say, hey, look, some of these things are not for the Christian." And see, look, we see this 
happen as people twist the word of God like throughout history or just ignore it altogether. Some people will take the gifts of God and they'll treat them as God themselves. They'll treat these gifts as though they're God. And so they'll, they'll do this with sex and marriage and find their whole identity in it. Or they'll do this with food and drink. They'll eat like a glutton or drink like a drunkard. Other people will take the gifts of God and, and they'll be like, oh, those things are, are gross, right? So they don't true worship them as God, but they treat them as gross. And this thinking starts from, uh, it's rooted really in, in, in Greek, Greek dualism. Uh, just bear with me really quick, because in Greek dualism, uh, they taught at the time that there are spiritual things which are good and physical things which are bad. And so they'll say, look, sex is gross because it's, it's not for our enjoyment, it's not for our pleasure, but only for procreation. Or they'll say marriage is gross, it just holds you back from a truly fulfilling life. Well, they'll say, no, certain foods are gross, you shouldn't eat them or drink caffeine or drink wine. But the Bible says that these things are neither gross things to look down on, nor gods to be lifted up and worshipped, but they are gifts to be enjoyed. The false teachers, they were treating marriage and certain foods as gross for the Christian. They were denying God's goodness and they were distorting the word of God. They were setting their own view of the Christian life over and above the view that God revealed in his word. See, but when you begin to forbid the good things that God allows, you'll soon find yourself allowing the things that God forbids. And the reason is because you have set yourself up as God. You've set yourself up as a final word of truth instead of God. And that is what ticked Paul off so royally. This is why he calls it the teaching of demons. He's like, are you kidding me? You're missing the whole point of the gospel. Even worse, by this teaching, you're drowning out the good news of the gospel, freedom and hope in Christ. So he talks about their insincerity. He talks about their lying. And lastly, in this verse, in verse 2, he also mentioned in that their seared consciences. He says their consciences are seared. Now listen, this should terrify you. And I don't mean terrify in like an unhealthy way where you're like scared of God, where, where, uh, where you run away from him, but in a good way, like the holy fear of God, where you realize that he's so big and so awesome and so holy. You're like, where else can I run but to him? This should terrify us in that kind of way because he's saying that those who double down and continue in their hypocrisy and lies will eventually have consciences that are seared. In other words, they were so persistent in their hypocrisy and lies, they were so committed to rejecting the truth and goodness of God that their sin started becoming like this automatic like reflex for them. For example, um, many of you know, it's a new year, right? January. Uh, so uh, I went ahead and made some goals for myself, right? I turned 40 at the end of the year. 
Uh, I refuse to continue being in bad shape. And so I've been like tracking my meals and logging my workouts. I've been going to bed earlier um, on average, right? Because I know my wife is here somewhere. So I've been going to bed earlier on average. Uh, I've been doing, I've been doing some, some reading on, on the topic. And, and they say that on average, it takes 66 days to develop uh, a new positive habit and less than a week to develop a new, a new bad one. And so if you want to develop a new habit, like reading your Bible daily, praying, removing processed sugar from your diet, like you need to do that action again and again and again and again and again, repeatedly over time until it starts to become like this automatic reflex where it starts to become a natural desire for you. You've sort of rewired your, your brain and what your, your body desires. Uh, and the same process applies when we fall into sin. When we sin... We are rejecting the truth and the goodness of God. We're saying, no, God, you don't get to decide what's true and right. I do. You don't get to tell me what is good and satisfying. My feelings do. Kevin DeYoung explains this with a frostbite analogy. He says, we can develop spiritual frostbite. When we first do something we know we should not, we feel that twinge of conscience. We feel pain in our extremities like we do when we're outside in the cold. Yet if we persist in doing what is foolish, there comes a time when, when we start to feel better about engaging in such behavior. We no longer consider that it is wrong. The bad stuff doesn't feel so bad anymore, which is when we are in great spiritual peril. This is the danger of having a seared conscience. And as we repeat our sinful habits again and again and again, like DeYoung says, we grow numb to the Spirit's work in us. We grow deaf to the voice of God. Our conscience becomes seared in the words of Paul. That's what he's talking about getting to a point to where you're, you're just so enmeshed with sin that you're, you're just not even phased by it anymore. Your ears have become deaf to the voice of God's truth. And so this begs the question, man, what do we do? How can I make sure that that doesn't happen to me? How does one avoid this? How does one avoid being led astray? How does one avoid hypocrisy and lying and falsehood and a seared conscience? This leads us to our third and final point where we see the qualities of Christians who stay. The qualities of Christians who stay in the faith. You see, the difference between those who stray and those who stay is found at the end of verse three. Did you see it? thing about these false teachers is that they, uh, it says, these teachers who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created, what does it say? He created them to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Paul names a couple qualities of the kind of person who's not easily led astray. He says they receive his gifts, God's gifts, with thanksgiving, and they believe and know the truth. Those two things. 
receive his gifts with thanksgiving. Now, when we look at that phrase, receiving his gifts with thanksgiving, this verse here is eye-opening. At least it should be. It says that the most thankful people in the world should be those who know the truth. He says Christians who really know the truth of who God is, who really know who he is and what he's done for us in Jesus, they should be the most thankful people in the world because they know that every good and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. See, people want to enjoy the gifts of God without being grateful to God from whom those blessings flow from whom those blessings are given. If you have kids, you probably did this around Christmas time, young kids. Um, your kid opens up a gift from grandma and grandpa or auntie or uncle. They're all stoked on it. They start unwrapping it. They want you to open it right away, put the batteries in right away. And what's the first thing you tell, tell your kid to do? Hey, go, go say thank you, right? Go say thank you. Because what's more important than the gift you get is the relationship that you have with the giver. You see, there's not a single thing that you and I enjoy that cannot be traced back to God's grace and his mercy and his providence. From the home that you live in, to the church family that you're growing with, to the clothes on your back, to the food that you eat, to the hobbies that you take up, it all traces back to God's gracious provision to you. And so he says, those who don't stray are those who receive his gifts with thanksgiving. He also says that they're the ones who believe and know the truth. That's the next part of verse 3. So how do you combat bad and false teaching? By believing in and knowing the truth of what it is that God actually says. That's what the scriptures are for us. That's what the Bible is. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 8, verse 31 and 32. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, and you are truly my disciples or my followers, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Do you abide in his word? <coughs> Do you plant yourself so that your roots suck in the nutrients from the stream of living water, which is God's word? Do you trust in his promises? Is your life conforming to the gospel? Are you exposing yourself to the truth of God's word? If you are, then the truth, Jesus says, will set you free. <coughs> and this is what... Paul does in the next verse, in verse 4, he corrects the lie by taking us to the scriptures. Verse 4, he says, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. You see, so on the one hand, the false teachers were saying, look, marriage and some foods are bad for the Christian. And Paul says, nope, wrong. Everything created by God is good. What is he doing there? He's quoting Genesis 1 on the creation of the universe. <coughs> Do you remember what, <coughs> excuse me. Do you remember uh, what God said after each day of creation? 
What did he say? It says that God saw his creation. He stepped back, he looked at it, and he said what? This is good. It was good. When he created man and woman and joined them together in marriage, he said it was very good. And so he's pointing them to the scriptures. That's how you combat false teaching. You believe in the truth. You know the truth, as Paul is exercising here. And then he ends in verse 5 by saying, For it is made a holy by the word of God and prayer. These things, these good gifts that we receive, are made holy by the word of God and prayer. Do you know what it means to be made holy? It's to be set apart for God's purposes, for his purposes in the world. Now, this is significant here. He already said everything created by God is good. But then how do you discern if it's something that comes from him? You verify it by the word and by praying over it. That's how you know that something is good from God. Listen, man, people want to get, like, wasted on drinks and say, gift from God, right? Enjoying myself. This is a gift from God. But, but what does the word say about sober-mindedness? When you pray the scriptures, what happens in your heart? Like, does, is the, the bottle, does it become something that you, you worship, something that controls you? Or is it a gift that you receive with thanksgiving within the boundaries that God gives? Verse 5 tells us that when you give ordinary gifts over to God by word and prayer, he can make them holy. It's a mystery for sure. It's his supernatural spirit at work for sure. But when we give ordinary gifts over to God with thankfulness in our hearts by word and prayer, he can make them holy to us. He can set them apart for his purposes. And so when you enjoy a good meal and some good drink and give thanks to God in your heart, that meal turns into more than physical nourishment. It can be spiritually nourishing too, as it brings you to worship and produces thankfulness and gratitude in your heart. People around the table turn into more than just company that you're sitting with. They become the bonds of fellowship when you pray and give thanks to God together. You see, when we remember the goodness of God's creation and thankfully and prayerfully received his good gifts, common things turn into kingdom things. Common things turn into kingdom things through thankfulness, word, and prayer. Man, I want you to consider just the, the mind-boggling simplicity of what the word is saying here. How can a Christian stay in the faith rather than stray from it? How is it that we're kept from being drawn into loving the world and abandoning our Savior? We're kept by his grace as we enjoy his gifts in accordance to the word and with thankful hearts to God in prayer. That's it. We're kept by his grace as we enjoy his gifts in accordance to the word and with thankful hearts to God in prayer. 
That's all he says. So look, man, maybe you're here and you're like questioning the faith. You're still not sure about this whole thing. Or, or maybe like you've strayed away from it. Like you used to sit in the pews and now you've strayed away from it for a while. Like I hope these verses make you tremble in a good way, in a humbling way, in a way that draws you back to the Savior. So you can turn to Jesus who offers the ultimate free, good gift of grace and forgiveness. If you just turn from your old ways and trust in him and know that he is true and that he is good. Maybe... Maybe you're here and you're, you're heartbroken and saddened by the people that you know who've wandered away from the faith. You're wondering, based on the scriptures, if they never, ever really knew Jesus at all. It's good to mourn that. We should be sad about that. But also because of the word, it's good to be hopeful knowing that no one, not a single person, not a single body or soul can be snatched from the hands of our good shepherd. So I invite you to see God's kindness and his patience towards us. See his persistence in his mission. See his beauty in his gospel, the good news. And know that there are passages just like this that have been preserved, written in the word and preserved throughout centuries so that maybe, hey, one day the friend that you're thinking about might read it. Maybe one day you might have an opportunity to walk them through it and watch them come alive by it and find new hope and saving faith in Jesus. For all of us, let's remember that God has revealed his truth and goodness through the word and through Jesus himself when we gaze at the gospel. That is the epitome of goodness. He's the center of our truth. Paul wants to warn us that there are members who stray, there are teachers who stray, but more than anything, he wants us to continue on in the simple faith Enjoy his gifts in accordance with the word and with thankful hearts to God in prayer. Hold fast and stand on the word. Be persistent in prayer. And above all, remember, remember the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.